Amen. I hope most of you are more awake than our students. I feel for our students because this is the fourth time they've had to listen to me talk in the last 24 hours, and they have one more with me afterwards, so uh, hopefully they will be okay. We have had a great Disciple Now weekend, and I've had the privilege of getting to open God's Word as we've walked through with the student ministry this idea of identity and what it means to have an identity in Christ. And I just tell you that, church family, to ask that you would, in the next week and two, that you would just, in a special and extra fervent way, cover our students in your prayer, because many of them have heard the Lord speak this week, and they have made choices to respond in obedience, and I know that when they walk back into school on Tuesday and they get back in the normal swings of life, they have a very real enemy that will come against what God has done. So I just ask that you would cover them in a special way in your prayer these next several weeks. God is moving, and I'm grateful for each and every one of the students that we have. December 7th, 1941 is the day that in American history will live in infamy, Pearl Harbor. For me, however, it is December 9th, 2007 that for me personally is the day that lives in infamy. December 9th, 2007 was a Sunday. It was that evening. It was the Sunday in between finals week, my first semester of college. I was in my dorm room, had just finished spending some time with a friend down the hallway, and about 9.30, my phone rings. I pick up the phone, and, and my mother is on the other end, and she says, Wes, I'm here at the dorm. I need you to come out. It's all the phone ends. I walk out my door. The RA is coming back with a real concerned look on his face, and as I make that walk through the hallway, I know instinctively someone I love has died. I just don't know who, I just don't know how. And truly, nothing could have prepared me for walking out in that dorm and for my mom to grab me by the hands and say, Wes, tonight, uh, Mimi W., my, my dad's mom, was murdered at the front door. From there... We begin to unpack that. I, I, would, I would walk through that night. I would go over to the house where my dad was. I would walk through those days. And, and unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that in college, that was the only phone call like that I had. But the honest truth is, by the time I was halfway through college, I had been to 15 funerals for family and family of friends. In the days that followed, it was very difficult. It is still difficult to this day. I rarely will you ever hear my phone ring. I don't like the sound of phones ringing. Because there was a period of life where every time the phone rang, it brought news of death and destruction and just further affirmed how truly powerless I am in this world. You and I live in a world that is very dangerous. You and I live in a world where we have very little control, if honestly, any. And in light of this, it is very easy to fall into one of two places. It is, it is in the fear of, of, of this world, it's very easy to fall into a place where we just ignore the real reality of the world. Or to swing to the other side where we seek and we fight to have control and to protect and to insulate every part of our lives where we think the world cannot touch us. Both ultimately are driven out of fear and are driven against the Lord who says, do not fear. But how are we to do that? In a world and in a life where we will walk through hardships, where we will walk through valleys, where we will walk through trials, how do we do that? 
If you've got your Bibles, go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. Isaiah 43. We're going to pick up in verse 1 when you get there. I'll tell you as you're turning there, the context of where this falls in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing down prophecy from the Lord and he has just in chapter 42 told Israel how they are blind, how they have turned their back on God, how they have rejected God and because they have rejected him, God will be bringing a refining fire into their life. There will be hardship, there will be trial coming, but God is in control and he, he moves into chapter 43 addressing a people that will find themselves and several hundred years after this is written, as a result of God's discipline for their sin in exile, captive, powerless, and out of control, afraid. And here's what he says. But now, thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, you are mine. God says, do not fear how. Well, he says, how? One, be confident in the nature of my relationship with you, my people. He tells Israel, I am your creator. I am the one who made you by an act of my own choosing. It pleased God to create the nation of Israel. For you and I, we are God's creation. There's not one of us in here as a human that is not God's special creation. And you and I need to understand, it pleased God to make us. We are not an afterthought in the mind of God. He tells Israel, I am the one who formed you. And that word formed, not so much referring to how he has designed and wired, but the idea of pottery in the hand of a potter who has applied specific and intricate pressure to shape and mold the vessel. And just as he worked through the life and history of Israel to shape and mold them, so too you and I are not a product of chance. We are not a product of random events. But we are from a God who created us, who has formed and used life events to shape and to mold us. And he says, do not fear, I have redeemed you. It's an interesting word. The word, the word in, its, in its root refers to the idea of ransom. But this specific, specific way it's used is not the idea so much of ransom, but is the idea of the kinsman redeemer. That is the one who claims, what God is saying to Israel is, I have claimed you as my own family. And I bear and shoulder the burdens and the weights and the afflictions that you come to. Well, for you and I, when you and I have responded in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, we're, we're not just simply anybody in God's kingdom. You and I, we are claimed and adopted as sons and daughters of God. God has redeemed us. He has claimed us as his own. There is an intimacy there. He is our father. Scripture says we cry, Abba. And he shoulders every last burden and affliction and responsibility for our deliverance. He says, I have called you by name. I've called you by name. The God of the universe. Before whom none can stand. Did not simply come and say, humans, here's my offer of salvation. Now who wants to respond? That is not what scripture says. Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Scripture is clear. The Holy Spirit moves in the kindness of God to convict our hearts of sin. The reality is, when I came to Christ 25 years ago, it was not because there was just a loud cry saying, who will be saved? It's because God came and said, Wes, 
I died for you. And so he has said and called each one of us, if you are in Christ, by name. There is an intimacy, a personalness there, a a way of relating to God that means we are on a first name basis. And he says, look at the cry, you are mine. How are you and I not to fear? Because we are confident of the intimate and personal relationship that God has if we are his people. But how else? Look what he says in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through fire, you will not be scorched. Now, quite literally for Israel, the metaphor there is is elsewhere in, in Scripture. It says that the assaults of the Assyrian Empire upon Israel were like a flood of waters. Fires referring to, referring to the military conquest as armies would come in. And you can picture whether it's Assyria with the northern kingdom or Babylon with the southern kingdom. All of a sudden, here, here they are, God's people. Except no longer is there a sense of protection. And here Babylon sweeps through, buildings burning, fires raging. What does he say? He says, when you come to these moments, I am with you. For you and I, we don't face the threat of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. But we face the waters of adversity, the waters of trial, the waters of affliction, the fires of hardship. We live in a world where your phone can ring any moment and bring news of one who has passed that you love. We live in a world where at any moment the news can pop up with another horrific scene that takes place in our world and society. We live in a place where dreams... Maybe the dreams of the college you want can be squashed. We live in a place where finances can run out. We live in a place where there is injustice. We live in a place where even we as God's children can take a misstep and believe something false and fall into sin and God must bring discipline to correct us. But he says, I will be with you. He does not say There is no promise as a child of God that you and I will not get wet or that you and I will not feel the heat of the flame. The promise is that when we get wet, when we feel the heat, he is with us. He is with us intimately. He is there in the moment. The promise is that he has gone before us according to Deuteronomy. He goes before us. He goes with us. He will never leave or forsake us. The promise in Matthew is, lo, I am with you always. And he tells us in Romans chapter 8 that as a child of God, he takes all things, all the waters and the fires we pass through, and he works them together for his perfect good in our life. Nothing can touch us without his allowance or permission, and there is nothing that will touch us that he will not use. That's why James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect effect that you may be what mature and complete lacking nothing we see this there's a beautiful passage at the end of second timothy where paul says there i stood on trial and everyone had deserted with me no one stood with me and he says but in that moment jesus stood with me There is never a moment, whether it is us reaping some discipline from the Lord or whether it is a way that the the world has touched, there is ever a moment where God is not intimately present, where he is there, there with us. The question will be, what will our response be to his presence in the waters and in the fires? 
Will our response be one like that of Israel at the waters of the Red Sea? Where they deliberately accuse and question God. Here God has delivered them. They arrive at the waters. They're afraid. They see the Egyptians coming. And what is their response? God, did you bring us here to just kill us? And of course, God does exactly what God intends to do. God delivers his people. They walk across the sea on dry ground. Convicted of their lack of faith. Or will we respond to the presence of God like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who, when confronted with a literal flame, looked at the king and said, If it be so, our God whom we serve is more than able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Will our response be that which is unwavering, faithful, love and submission to God simply because he is God and we are his? Will we know the conviction of seeing God deliver while sitting in a lack of faith? Or will we, know, will we know him deeper and greater intimacy as we fellowship with him in the midst of the fire? Now we can't be mistaken, hardships, waters, fires, they bring real grief. God's command here is do not grieve, do not be sorrowful. The command is do not be afraid. Fear and grief are two different things. When you pass through the fires, when you walk through the waters, it's natural as a human to go, God, I do not understand. I cannot fathom why this is happening. I don't know what to do. This hurts. And God does not have a problem with grief. If he had a problem with grief, he would not call himself the God of all comfort. Nor would we find Jesus weeping at the loss of a loved one. Now there is a difference. Grief is real. Grief has to happen. There is a way that we can grieve rightly and godly. There is a way that we can grieve confident of the personal relationship that God has with us, confident of his presence with us. But we are not to fear because he is with us. We're not to fear because he's personal and related with us. We're not to fear because he is with us. But we're also not to fear because we are confident and sure of who he is and the way that he values us, our value in his sight. Look down at verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight. Because you are honored and I love you. I will give men in your place and peoples in exchange for your life. Are we confident of who he is? Look what he says he is. He says, I am the Lord. The personal name of God that throughout the Exodus refers to the God who takes up the cause of his people and is there to deliver them. The God who reveals himself to us. He is the God. He is our deliverer, the revealer. He is, says, I am the Lord, your God. That's a powerful statement because at this time in the life of Israel, they are not honoring him as God. His reference as your God is not a statement to Israel saying, I'm the God you've picked. He's saying, I'm the God who picked you. The reality is every one of us, yes, did all of us come in a free response of repentance and faith to receive the grace of God? Absolutely. But it was a response to God's movement in our life. He is our God. He has chosen us. He has called us. He says he is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel, this title that in the book of Isaiah refers to God who is wholly other. That's 
what the word holy means. Yes, it means righteous, it means pure, it means blameless without defect, but it also just means unique, distinct, other. God is not like creation. We cannot take the way we view man and put it onto God because God is not like broken man. He is holy, holy, holy. Because he is holy, he is good. Because he is holy, he is loving. Because he is holy, we can have absolute confident assurance that we are secure in him. He says, I am your savior, the one who delivers you from affliction. And no matter what affliction you and I face today, deliverance, there may be deliverance this side of heaven, but there will guaranteed be deliverance coming forever. He says, I am the one who ransomed. And this is just a powerful thought. He said, I have given Egypt as your ransom. Why is that significant? One, here in the midst of a time where Israel is going to find themselves in a chaotic world and a changing geopolitical landscape as people come in and conquer and take them away, God does not call their attention to the present but says, remember the past. Remember the past. Remember the time that you were, you were in Egypt, trapped and enslaved, and I gave Egypt the most powerful, prosperous, intelligent people in all of the world. I gave them as your ransom. The idea of ransom being, being a payment, a gift, whether that is a thing or an amount of money or a, a person in exchange for the release of another person from a debt or imprisonment for damages caused. It's literally the idea of one being up on the seller's block with people buying them to keep them enslaved and another one stepping forth and saying, here, I will pay the price. I will pay the price to take that one off the block and free them from the shackles. And he says to Egypt, I says to Israel, I gave Egypt as your ransom, not just Egypt, but even Cush and Seba, the lowest parts, the most extreme, I was willing to give the best this world had to offer on your behalf. He calls them to the past, but he also calls them in verse 4 to the future. And I will give men and peoples in exchange for you in your place, implying that we have a place, a place where we are on the seller's block, enslaved and captive. And we know from the rest of Scripture that for us, that's enslaved and captured for, to sin. And God did not give Egypt or other peoples in exchange as our ransom. God gave Jesus Christ, his own son, as our ransom. Jesus said, I did not come to serve or be served, but I came to give my life as a ransom for many. It's going to say in a few chapters later in Isaiah 53 that it pleased God to crush the suffering servant, his son, on our behalf. God has ransomed us with the precious blood of his son, you and I who were born in brokenness, you and I who are still capable of choosing to believe other things and to walk outside of God, you and I, God chose to give his son who has never displeased the father in a single moment, who has never failed to have a flawless love for the father, the father ransomed with that one's precious blood, you and I. Why? It says because you are precious in my sight. Literally means in my sight, in my value, in God's judgment as he looks on, down on us as, as men and women, he looks down upon us and he says, you are of worth, of great value to me. You are honored. There is a dignity that I give you. I, I honor you, which is a wild thought because we don't, we were not born honoring him. And he says, because I love you. How are you and I not to fear in the midst of trials? We're to be absolutely confident of who he is. 
and absolutely confident of the way that he has valued you and I and has acted on our behalf. We are in the midst of trials not to look to our emotions, but we are to look back to the objective historical reality of Christ on the cross, ransoming us, seeing it as the ultimate and supreme sign of love. Jesus said, no greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. In this, the love of God is manifest, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sin, which is why we can be confident that if God has not spared his own son, how much more will he not give all things? For in Christ, we are more than conquerors, for I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Are we confident and sure of who our God is? The Holy One, the Lord, Jehovah, our God, and our value in His sight. And do not ever forget, there is no more perfect love than the Father for the Son Yet even in that perfect love, the Father allowed the Son to suffer. If we are to be like Christ, we will face the waters and the fires, but we are not to fear. He goes on, he says, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. He says, do not be afraid for I am with you. I'm with you, I'm present, I am there to deliver you. Do not be afraid, I will not forsake you for, for if you and I are a child of God, the only reason that we could be forsaken by God has been dealt with by Jesus, the one who was forsaken on you and I's behalf. I am with you, and what does he say? I am with you. Are we confident that he is sovereign, that he is almighty, and that he is faithful? I mean, that's what he says. He's telling to Israel, look, I made a covenant with Abraham. I told Abraham I'd make a great people, and I would give your people a land. If God does not preserve a great people, and if God does not give them a land, then he is not faithful to that covenant. And here, as Israel is going to be going, the northern kingdom will be scattered around the world. The southern kingdom dragged into, dragged into captivity. God says, I will bring everyone back. Not just I will bring everyone back, but I will make the places that have taken you give you back. And he says, who is these that I bring back? Those who are called by my name, who I have created for my glory. You see, we serve a God who is absolutely almighty. He has all power. There is none who can stand and withstand him. We serve a God who is sovereign. He is the one who is at the will of the ship. It doesn't matter how many waves hit the ship. It doesn't matter if we think something else is going on. God is the one driving the ship of history. And he is faithful to his covenant. What has he covenanted you and I? This is just a handful. He's told us in Romans 8 that his covenant with us is to conform us into the image of Christ. He said in John 14 that he goes to prepare a place for us that where he is we would also be. He's covenanted to give us an eternal home. He's covenanted to abolish sin and death. He has made a covenant with us. And under no circumstances of anything you and I face in this life will his covenant not come to pass. It is his job to grow us. It is our job to trust him. It is his job to lead us. It's our job to follow him. It's his job to provide for us. It is our job to rest in him. 
It is his job to win the day. It is our job to worship him. He is almighty. He is sovereign. He is faithful. And we are made for his glory. Don't miss that there in verse 7. See, for many of us, part of the reason fear comes in in this world, not all, but part, is because we have a feeling of entitlement that says, God, why are you not giving me the health, wealth, and prosperity of the American dream? We have a fundamental misunderstanding if that is the case. God does not exist for my glory. I exist for his glory. My life is about him. Our lives are about his purpose. Our life as a church is about him, his glory, his purpose to the ends of the earth for all eternity. We don't trust him simply because of the good things that he gives. We trust him because he is God, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior. God takes fear very seriously. Far more seriously than I think, I'll, I'll just be honest, than I, do, than I do at times. He takes fear seriously because fear will drive us from his heart. Fear will fester and foster doubt towards his, him and his character. Fear will lead us to trust in our own plans and powers. And in a chaotic world, it will encourage us to either grasp for control or it will lead us to despair where we just want to hide in a closet. Both of which will cause us to miss him and what he has planned. I can face, I don't want to. God never says I have to like the waters and the fire. But I can face my phone ringing another time if I am confident and sure of who he is, of his value of me, of the intimacy with which he relates to me, of the fact that he is with me always and that he is a God who is faithful, who is sovereign and almighty, will not fail in what he is called and what he is doing both in and through me and through us and in this world. So are we sure today or are we afraid? Are we trusting him? Are we submitting him? Submitting to him? Are we grasping for our own control? Are we sure? Pray with me. God, I have watched many times. God, I have watched you be faithful. I have watched your presence with me. I have seen as you have walked, as you have led me through the waters, through the fires, both when I have trusted you and when I have set scared. And so today, Lord, I just praise you that you are the God, that you are the God who, who, who takes an intimate tie to us, who calls us your sons and your daughters, that you are a God who is with us in the midst of the water and the fire. You are a God who is holy. You are a God who is faithful. You are a God who is almighty. So God, find us responsive to who you are today. I don't know how you're moving, Lord, but you do. As you move, find us obedient to respond. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, God is moving in this place.
For some of you, you may say, man, this God that you've just described is incredible. But understand that the reason I can be confident of who this God is and his relationship with me is because I have a relationship with him. Because I am in Christ. If that is you today and you do not know Christ, you have never responded to him in repentance and faith. And he says today is the day of salvation. If you have questions, we would be happy. The staff is down front to talk with you, to walk you through that. God may be leading you. You may know Christ. There may be another way God is leading you today to join the church, to repent of sin, to to continue to just worship him and where he's at. I don't know what the response is, but as God moves, you follow. The staff and I are down front.